first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set out before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. With a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. And God spoke all these words. And what a monumental set of words God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Words that have stood the test of time because they emanated from a God who is beyond time. Words that have penetrated into every corner of the globe because they were spoken by a God who is beyond space. When you think about those words that were spoken by God on Mount Sinai, even though they were spoken over 3,400 years ago, They continue to impact us to this very day. 
We may not know them all. We may not be able to repeat them all. But they're there. And every hour of every day, no matter where we live, no matter if we're thinking of them or not, we live in constant reference to them. These words that God spoke on Mount Sinai. And what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, God wrote in stone. Now understand, these words were not inscribed by Moses. They were not chiseled into the rock by any human hand. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 10.9, emblazoned on these stones, tablets, were the words that were written by the finger of God. Think about that. Friends, this was a hinge point in human history. Why is that? Why would I consider this one of the most important moments in all of civilization's history? Because in just 17 brief verses of Exodus, chapter 20, God laid the foundation for understanding who he is And how we relate to him and who we are, all of us, all of mankind, and how we relate to each other. See, these words were not the product of the gradual evolution of human thought since the dawn of man. They weren't the culmination of millions of years of social development as man evolved over time from brute-like creatures to, in, in the animal kingdom to, to the moral order of civilization. That's not what these words were. The Bible says, and God spoke. And he spoke all these words. You see, these words were revealed They weren't discovered by us. We didn't come up with them over time. We didn't think them them up by ourselves. They weren't the product of human experience. These were the revelation of God, a divine disclosure of the character of God and his will for human beings. This was God making himself and his will known. And we know these words as the Ten Commandments. Now think for a moment where these words are found. It's fascinating to me. And I think that it's no accident or coincidence that these words are found in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. That word Exodus means to depart, to leave, to to exit. And the Israelites had just exited Egypt. Now, I think this is fascinating because the Egyptians believed in a vast number of gods and goddesses. And they identified them with the forces of nature, things like wind and water or or natural objects, okay? Like, for example, the sun god Ra or Horus, the god of the sky or the heavens, These gods in Egyptian history were were somewhat fluid. In other words, their importance and their focus could morph over time. 
And depending on which district of Egypt you lived in, you may focus on some of these gods over here and, and not so much on others. And if you lived in this district over here, you focused on these gods more than you did on these others. But not only could they be different depending on where you lived in Egypt, but they could also be different depending on when you lived. For example, the god Osiris began in Egyptian history as the god of vegetation, plant life, but later became the god of the dead. How exactly that happened, I do not know. But the Israelite nation had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And living as slaves in one of the most, if not the most advanced civilizations at that time, had to have impacted the belief system of the Israelites. Think about it, your your slave masters have this belief system about all these different gods and goddesses, and they have been in power over you for 400 years. Generation after generation of Israelites who lived their entire lives as slaves eventually, over time, lost connection with God, the father of Abraham. Moses himself was raised in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. And though he was aware of his heritage as an Israelite, does it really come as a surprise that when God called Moses out of that burning bush and told him to return to Egypt and lead the Israelites out of slavery, is it any wonder that Moses asked this question? The Bible tells us Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What's his name? And Moses asked God, then what shall I tell them? You think about it, Moses Request is not only reasonable under the circumstances. He's, he's wanting to know what, what is your name. But that question, what is your name, operates on more than one level. You see, he's not just asking, what's your name? Like, what am I supposed to call you? I mean, that, that is true, but that's not the only level that question operates on. Because you see, in that culture, your name conveyed, in some sense, your character, who you really are. Your name was significant because it conveyed your essential identity. And by asking his name, Moses is really asking, who are you? What are you like? How are we supposed to refer to you? And God's response is mind-boggling. God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now you think about this, in an Egyptian civilization with many gods by many names, God declared himself, I am. 
a name that describes his eternal power and unchanging character. That phrase, I am, means I've always been. I am the one who was and who is and who always will be. I am, they think of it this way. There is no before or after in me. I am. I am the past. I am in the present. I am in the future. And I'm, I am all the way across. You see, God is outside of time. He's declaring to Moses, no matter who you are or where you live or what district of Egypt you're in, I am And I do not change. In a world full of gods whose identities could shift over time and change in power and influence depending on where you were, I am. There is no other. And everything is dependent on the I am. As the Apostle Paul would later write, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's he's acknowledging God as the creator of everything. But there's more. He goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God didn't just create this all at the beginning. Every moment of every day, of your life, you continue to exist because God is the I am. And he sustains your existence every moment. He is the ground of existence. And only because he exists do you and I exist. It is only in him that we live and move and have our being. But it had been over 500 years since God spoke to Abraham. Abraham, a man whose wife was barren, was promised that he would become the father of a great nation. In fact, one night God told him, go outside and look at the stars, count the stars. That's how many descendants that you will have. But there is another promise with that. He said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, not only would God create a great nation out of this man and his barren wife, but in some way, shape, or form, all the world would be blessed because his descendants were in the world. Now, by the time of their slavery in Egypt, Abraham's descendants had grown into the 12 tribes of Israel, and they grew and multiplied even though they were enslaved. But friends, it would take something miraculous to convince these slaves and their Egyptian masters that the God of Abraham was the master of the universe. And so God imposed upon the Egyptians ten plagues. And these plagues are fascinating because is it any wonder 
that each of the plagues manifested God's power over one of the gods of Egypt. For example, Happy, the god of the Nile River, could not stop the god of Abraham and Moses from turning the Nile into blood. Ra, the sun god, could not stop God from causing darkness to envelop Egypt for three full days. Hathor, the god of livestock, was helpless as God destroyed the Egyptian livestock in droves. Each one of the plagues manifested God's power over the alleged gods of Egypt. His eternal might and power over nature were on full display. And when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they marched directly to Mount Sinai, where God revealed his will about how we are to relate to him and how we are to relate to our fellow human beings. Now, friends, the title of this lesson series is The Father. And during this lesson series, we're focusing on trying to get some picture of God and who He is. And today's lesson is entitled, His Justice, something that we see coming through the law that He gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, our focus verse for this lesson series is 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It's here on the screen. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for Him. Now think about what it's saying there, friends. It's saying we know that there is only one God. There is only one I am. But He's not some distant God. He's not some spirit being that exists out in the eternity and has no real connection with you and I because it says we know that there is only one God, the Father. God is described in familial terms. He is our Father. And when you think of a father, and I don't know what your father was like, and all of our fathers, let's just be honest, were flawed because we're all flawed human beings. But when you think of God the Father, this is someone who is loving, who is good, who wants what's best for us, who is a provider, and who is just. Someone who does the right thing. And he's holy, as we saw last week. Morally pure. But he is our Father, as well as our God. It says he created everything and we exist for him, not for ourselves, because we are created beings. We are creatures of a creator. So we don't exist for ourselves, we exist for him, our creator. So let's go to God in prayer, and then we're going to dive into today's lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us and for this opportunity that we have 
to spend time in your word. Father, it's our prayer this morning that you would remove any distractions, that you would help us to concentrate on what you are trying to say to us today. Help us to think well, Father, because we are handling your word. And so, Father, please help us to handle it with care. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son into the world and for being a Father who truly cares about what you've created. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, you received an outline, which is a white sheet with holes punched on the side, and that'll help you follow along with this morning's lesson. And this lesson this morning really banks off of last week's lesson that J.D. taught, um, a lesson on God as our Father and, and the aspect of Him that, is, that, that we use with the word holy. And so this, this lesson kind of works off of last week's lesson, but it also lays the foundation for next week. So you have to understand this one's kind of a two-parter, but next week's lesson is entitled His Wrath. And I can imagine some of you are probably thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like something that's, that's, that's fun to learn about. But I think you'll be pleasantly surprised next week. And so we're going to build some building blocks next week that we will build on next week, okay? But what does God's justice mean? That's what we want to begin with today. And if you'll remember, as God called the children of Israel to meet at Mount Sinai, he made this comment to Moses. He said, now if you obey me fully, circle those three words, obey me fully, he says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, circle the word my covenant, okay, circle those two words, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. So God is telling Moses and the Israelite people that of all the nations on the earth, you are going to be in a, in a particular relationship with me. And if you obey me and you keep this agreement that, that we have, which is I will speak to you, I will tell you what my will is, and you will be my people if you obey my commands, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a, circle these words, kingdom of priests. He's saying that, this group of people will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Circle the words holy nation. And when you think of that word priest, and he's, he's saying you guys are going to be a kingdom of priests. Priests normally operate as, as kind of like go-betweens or mediators or in-between people between God and people. And God is saying, what we're gonna, what's going to happen here is, is I am going to make you my treasured possession and you're going to be like priests for the entire world, all of mankind. And they're going to be able to look to you to see this is how people relate to God and this is how people relate to each other within God's will. And every other nation on earth can look to you and say, wow, that's, that's the way people ought to live. 
You're going to show people God's will. You'll be a kingdom of priests. And you'll be a holy. And that word holy means set apart. You're, you're to be different. You're to, you're to look different. Every other nation and every other people group on earth that looks at you should be able to say, that's different. They've got, they've got a different relationship with God and they treat each other differently than everybody else does. And then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and circle these words, consecrate them. Now that word consecrate just simply means set somebody apart or a people apart for a holy purpose. You set them apart. And he says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. So he says, basically take two days out of your life and set those days aside to concentrate on meeting with me. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I mean, this is huge. He's saying, you set these people apart, consecrate them. Take two days to do it. Wash everything you've got so that you're absolutely clean. You look pure and then come to the mountain. But then he said this. He said, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Ooh. Whoa, what's going on here? God is letting these people know, you know what? I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to be a holy nation. But you have to understand this is serious business. God is holy. He is completely other and apart. You cannot take him lightly. This is not something that you just do. This is huge. And so Moses goes up onto the mountain and God delivers to him the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments are all geared around man's relationship to God. And it begins with the very first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God's saying, guys, I am. Nobody else is I am. There can be no other gods. And then commandments 2, 3, and 4 follow suit about how they are relate to God. But then commandments 5 through 10 shift the focus from our relationship with God to our relationship with our fellow man. And here God helps these people understand what it is like individually. How should I treat other people? And not only individually, but societally as well. Remember, he's called them to be a holy nation. And God is giving them a framework for being a holy nation. And he says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God's saying this is the way people should treat people. It's fascinating to me. Back in the 1980s, I used to teach philosophy at Southern State Community College. I did that for five years. And one of the sections I taught every year was a, a section in political philosophy. And at the beginning of every, every uh, semester, I would ask the students, if you were to create the perfect society, what rules would you put in place in order to govern that society? It was fascinating to me because, you know, they would, they would start talking among themselves and, well, you know, if, if, if you're going to have the perfect society, there's some things people should do and there's some things they shouldn't do. And almost invariably, they would come up with some, if not all, of the last six commandments. Never failed every year. You know what? If you're going to have a perfect society, people probably shouldn't kill each other. You know? They've got to stop doing that. I mean, if, 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 it's, it's tough to be in a social group with you if I'm wondering if you're going to kill me, right? So we've got to knock that out. And you know what? You shouldn't steal stuff. If, somebody, if something that belongs to somebody else, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be taking that. And you know what? In a perfect society, nobody would mess with somebody else's spouse. Okay? You want to cause trouble? Start doing that. Because not only do you make people really mad, but you break up families and you get kids that have broken homes. And God is saying, you know what, guys? If you're going to be a holy nation, there's some things you must do and there's some, some things you must not do. Or it will not work. And when you think about it, what God is telling these people is an extension of his holiness. That very first point in your outline says it this way. Holiness, and this was something that J.D. covered last week, but it forms the basis for our discussion today about justice. Holiness is defined as God's absolute sinless perfection. And so when God is giving the Ten Commandments, he's beginning to tell these people, this is what it's like, this is how you should treat each other, and this is how you should relate to me because I am a holy, sinless God. So holiness is God's absolute sinless perfection and freedom from the potential of moral evil and God is calling his people away from evil. The prophet Habakkuk said this about God. He said, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. But then Habakkuk goes on to say this. It's true, your eyes cannot look on evil and you can't tolerate long doing. But then he says, but why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And what Habakkuk is talking to me about here is the fact that, you know what, sometimes God's timetable is not ours. 
Sometimes he operates in a different time frame. And sometimes his justice and this is tough guys but there is some time there are times when God's justice is delivered by people who are not necessarily good and we'll explore that a little bit more next week but what is this thing called justice Biblically speaking, there are kind of two different aspects of justice. There's kind of a, a more general aspect of justice, and there's a very specific. And let me give you the general aspect first. Justice, generally speaking, is righteousness. Some of you have heard that word, righteousness, and you need to understand that the original Hebrew and Greek words for justice are the same as those translated for righteousness. The two ideas are essentially the same. And what they mean is this, doing in all circumstances that which is right and good. Okay? Doing in all circumstances that which is right and good. And so when you think about it, justice is simply God's holiness in action. God is morally pure. And his justice is simply an extension of his holiness as it plays out in life. The Bible tells us in Psalm eleven seven, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. So that righteous and justice, those two ideas are essentially the same. It also goes on to say, so then the law, which is God's delivery of how we should treat each other. In the Ten Commandments, it says, so the law is holy. In other words, it's an extension of God's holiness. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So you have this sense that justice is this action element of God's holiness. But there's also a specific aspect to justice. And when we, when we start dealing this with this, most of you are going to be going, okay, I've heard this. This makes sense to me. What many of you may not understand is that when you hear it in the public uh, forum in the United States, you may not realize that it's actually biblical. Justice means rendering impartially, rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his or her due in accord with God's righteous standard. Now we're going to go back and we're going to, we're going to, Look at each one of these terms. But justice, specifically speaking, means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his or her due in accordance with God's righteous standards. So what does that mean? What's it mean, impartially? Impartially simply means to treat people equally or equal application of the law. 
You see this in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say this. Hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Judge fairly. Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. He's saying it doesn't matter if that person's a foreigner or if that person is an Israelite. If they end up in court, treat them fair. The law applies to all. Hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. In other words, what God is saying is, you know what, guys? It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. The law applies. Justice should be the same for each. Don't treat the rich person differently because that person is rich. Don't pity the poor person and treat them differently because they're poor. If you break the law, you break the law. And the law applies to you. Don't treat that person differently if they're educated or uneducated. Don't treat that person differently for any reason. You treat them impartially. The second aspect of justice is proportionally. In other words, the punishment fits the wrong done. The punishment fits the crime. And throughout the Old Testament, as God is giving the law to Moses and the Israelites, one of the things you see is you see differences in punishment. Because God, God says, for this offense, this is the punishment. For this offense, this is the punishment. They don't tr- you don't treat everybody the same because some, some of the things are petty. But some of the things are serious. And some of the things you treat very seriously and some you treat less seriously based on The wrong done. The third aspect of justice. Rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his or her due. And that word due simply means that which is deserved. That which is deserved. What does this person deserve? What does their conduct warrant? Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 says this. It says, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about it, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? What they've done. Rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his or her due based on their conduct. And then how do you determine? That definition closes with the phrase, in accord with God's righteous standard. 
God's righteous standard. What we're talking about here is God's knowable will. His knowable will. Remember, it said, and God spoke these words. In other words, God made his will known to Moses, to the Israelites, and to us. You see, you and I have the scripture. We have the Bible. We have the ability to know God's will if we'll open it up and read it. He makes his will known in order that we can live for him. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now, friends... He makes his will known so that we can become that holy nation, that kingdom of priests. And no, we're not a nation like the children of Israel were back in the Old Testament. But we are the church. And he has called us to live in a relationship with him and in relationship with each other in such a way that people see us, the church, as a holy nation as a kingdom of priests, as, as, a, as a group of people that folks will look at and go, they're different. They treat each other different. So friends, how do I respond to God's justice? How do you and I respond to God's justice? First of all, remember that I am a created being. Now I know some of you are probably looking at that and go, well, duh, Jeff. Isn't that kind of obvious? And the answer is I don't think so. And here's why I say that, okay? I think quite often you and I, and we're all guilty of this, forget that we're created beings. We're a lot like Adam and Eve. And there comes a point in our lives where we want to make the rules for ourselves. We want to act like we're autonomous, that we are not created, that we are our own God. And so we reach for that fruit on that tree, whatever that fruit is for us, and we grab a hold of it even though we know God has said, don't do that. That's a no. And we forget that he is the I am and we act like we are and that we're able to make our own rules and do as we please. And I think we have to remember that we are created beings. The second thing I think that we have to remember in order to respond to God's justice is to recognize that I am sinful. Now this may be painful We may not like thinking about this, but the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, indeed there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. But friends, recognizing our own sinfulness is critical. 
It's critical for our relationship with God because if we don't see ourselves as in need of God, then then that relationship is never going to work. But it's also critical that we see ourselves as sinful when it comes to our relationship with each other. Let me give you an example. In a very fascinating book called The Roots of American Order, the author by the name of Russell Kirk made a really couple really interesting observations. He said this. He said, until human beings are tied together by some common faith and share certain moral principles, they prey upon each other. In other words, he said, our natural bent is not to be nice and to be good to everybody around us. Our natural tendency is to prey upon one another. And that's why we need things like the Ten Commandments to remind us that there is a God and that we are not God and that our tendency is toward evil. But he goes on to make another fascinating observation. He said the principal difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution was this. The American revolutionaries in general held a biblical view of man and his bent towards sin. So he's saying the founding fathers of America had a biblical worldview. Whether or not they were all Christians is, is, is a different question. But, but they had a biblical worldview, which, which meant that they believed that man had a bent towards sin. He said, but the French revolutionaries in general attempted to substitute for the biblical understanding an optimistic doctrine of human goodness advanced by the philosophies of the Enlightenment. So you have these two groups of people, revolutionaries. The American revolutionaries who believe that man has a bent towards sin and the French revolutionaries who believed that man is innately good. What did this lead to? The American view led to the Constitution of 1787, a document whose primary intent is to limit power. Why? Because they believed that human beings have a bent toward evil. What did the French Revolution lead to? The guillotine. It is estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 people died on the guillotine in 1793 and 94, and they were from all classes of society. You see, friends, when we forget that we are sinful creatures. There are societal consequences that come with that. 
The third thing that we have to remember is this. We have to realize that we are responsible for our choices. I'm responsible for my choices. The writer C.S. Lewis in his famous book called Mere Christianity said this. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. You see, we are responsible for our choices and our choices matter and they change who we are. Now the fourth thing is this. Accept that my choices have consequences. We have to accept that our choices have consequences. And even though it may be our tendency to blame others or to shift blame to something else, our choices are our own. And wrong choices have bad consequences. The Bible says this in Exodus 34, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, referring to Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But it closes with this. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, his holiness cannot tolerate sin. His justice will deal with it. Which brings us to number five, and that is admit my need for a Savior. See, if there's anything that comes through loud and clear from the Old Testament, it's that the children of Israel were never quite able to live up to what God set forth in the commandments. They just couldn't do it. And the truth of the matter is, neither can you and I. We do sin. And what we need is a Savior. But 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, in other words, if we admit that we're sinners and we need a Savior, then God is faithful and, circle this word, just. He is faithful and just. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, somebody asked on one of the lesson series surveys, they, they, said, they said, okay, if I sin, how can God forgive me? How's that work? Because I never seem to be able to get it right. And the, and the answer is this. When we confess our sins and we accept what Christ did for us, God is just. In other words, he already punished our sins at the cross. And he will not punish us again for those if we confess our sins and accept what Christ did for us. So admit your need for a Savior. Now friends, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey this morning. I don't know what it is that you need to take whatever that next step of faith is that you need to take. 
there are a couple of things that I would like to talk to you about this morning that maybe can help you as you walk toward God. First thing is this. You know, there's this quote that I've heard before and it's been around so long that I couldn't even figure out who it was said it now. But they made this comment. They said, although I can't go back and start again, I can start now to make a new end. And I don't know what's in your past. But I've had people tell me, Jeff, you know, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and there is no way that God could ever forgive me. And I want you to know this morning that is not true. Whether you believe it or not, that's between you and God, but I'm telling you that is not true. And there's a lot of truth in this statement. No, you can't go back and start again. What's done is done. It's over. But you can start now to make a new end. And the way to start now is with Jesus Christ. And friends, if you have any questions about that, or if you'd like to talk about that, or if you would like just like me to pray with you, I'm going to be right down here in front after the service. If you want to stop by, I'll be happy to pray with you. I'll put your name in my prayer journal, and I'll pray for you all week. But friends, that's something I would love to do. Or if you have a question you'd like to ask. Second thing is you are a part, if you've accepted Christ, of a holy nation. Not like the nation of Israel, this is the church. And if you're a part of this church family, I would strongly encourage you to come tonight for Vision Night. There in the box on your outline, it's got all the details for you. But Vision Night is a time when our church family gets together. We have a worship service together, we share communion together, and we talk about where this church is and where we're heading. And that's tonight, and I would love for you to come. The last thing is please remember that God spoke. He spoke. But it's up to us to read what he said. And so on, your, on that box on the, on the bottom of your outline... There are several different Bible reading plans that you can get involved in here. And I would strongly encourage you to do that because that's how you'll know His will. Not only for you and your relationship with Him, but in your relationship with others. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us. And Father, we're thankful that you are holy, you're pure, that you're just. You do the right thing in every circumstance. And Father, we realize that as sinful creatures, that justice is a frightening thing. But you provided your son so that we would not have to face that And Father, for that, we're grateful. 
Help us, Father, to realize that we are a part of your family. And we're thankful that you've allowed us to be that. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.